My Fame Explained podcast, episode 29, Robert Metcalf. So, no, I had no idea Ethernet would have the impact that it did. Uh, at first, it was simply uh, a high-speed path to the first laser printer that we built at Xerox. And then it went from the laser printer, it went to email and access to the Internet. And before I knew it, it uh, the Ethernet, Ethernet and various forms of Ethernet, in, including wireless Ethernet, which today we call Wi-Fi, spread like wildfire and became the plumbing, uh, various forms of, of uh, local networking became the plumbing of the internet. Welcome to the My Famed Explained podcast, a podcast with the people you know and the personal stories behind their fame. I'm your host, Larry Gilbert. On this episode, Robert Metcalf, engineer, internet pioneer, and entrepreneur. Robert was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He holds degrees from MIT and Harvard, including his PhD in computer science. And starting in the 1970s, he co-invented the Ethernet. 3Com, his multi-billion dollar networking company, now part of Hewlett-Packard, and formulated Metcalf's Law, which describes the effect of a telecommunications network. Most recently, he's a retired professor of innovation and entrepreneurship at the University of Texas at Austin. So how did he go from college to leaving his imprint on the internet of digital technology that we know of today? Well, here's my conversation with Robert Metcalf and his ethernet fame explained. Thanks for taking some time to do this. I really do appreciate it. I'm uh, flattered that you would ask. So I guess, uh, like all guests, um, let's just start at the beginning of your life. Uh, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Did you have any siblings? Um, what was childhood life like for you? I was born in uh, Brooklyn, New York in 1946. I had a younger sister. My parents were both high school graduates. My father went to Brooklyn Tech and my wife went to the Brooklyn Academy. We moved out until we moved for a year to Levittown and then finally Bayshore, Long Island, where I went K-12. And then in 1964, I left New York behind me and went to, up to Boston to attend MIT. And that's where you uh, got your undergrad. Is Was that always your plan to go to MIT um, and pursue what kind of career you eventually would go on to, to do? Well, that's kind of a weird question because in fourth grade, I wrote a book report overnight on a book I hadn't read that was on my father's shelf. And it was written by two MIT electrical engineering professors. So I ended my book report with a gratuitous remark that I would someday get a degree in electrical engineering from MIT. Uh -huh. in, I wrote this in fourth grade, sucking up to my fourth grade teacher, probably. And, uh, and then I later did get a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from MIT. Yeah, I was going to say, um, yeah, that's what you would end up going on to do is get two, two degrees, right? Electrical engineering and then um, an industrial management from MIT? That's right, from the Sloan School of Management. The Yeah, the dual. I don't know why I got two bachelor's degrees. All my colleagues got a bachelor's and a master's. I think maybe I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> Either way, it worked out for you, right, in the end? Um, yeah, it, it did. And then, and then you went on to Harvard uh, for graduate school, so you got a master's in applied mathematics and then a phd in computer science um so was that then your plan after undergrad was to say okay now i'm going to go to graduate school and now not just mit but now i'm going to go to harvard 
I didn't like the way you asked that question. What do you mean, just MIT, but instead you went to Harvard? I, I hated Harvard. I, I, um, I went there because it was another school in Boston, and I was constrained uh, to uh, be in Boston. And, um, and then I learned very quickly that, uh, now this is 50 years ago, so you know I should have buried the hatchet by now, but uh, Harvard doesn't like engineers, or at least it didn't like them when I was there. Mm-hmm. So my, my first week, I ran into static from um, a non-engineering mentality. So I went right back to MIT, got a job there doing my PhD research at MIT for my PhD at Harvard. Okay. That's uh, that's interesting. I've never heard of uh, of someone doing that before. Was that common practice then, or uh, is it still common now? Uh, no, it's not common. It's uh, um, yeah. I just I proposed to Harvard that I build a piece of hardware to connect Harvard to the uh, to the internet, which was then called the ARPANET. And Harvard told me that it was too important a job to trust to a graduate student. But I had just finished graduating from MIT, and I knew how to build electronic devices. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was miffed immediately. And I went back to MIT, and MIT gave me a paying job to build the same hardware that I had proposed uh, to Harvard. And uh, you know, a year later, I built it. Uh, Harvard wouldn't even accept a gift of a free copy of my hardware, which MIT offered, because it was too important to trust to a grad student. Yeah. Huh. Um, and then towards well, and then towards the end of school, I mean, what you were doing then uh, and there for MIT, I mean, essentially led to your career, right? It kind of transitioned into what would be the beginning of your career, even after school. Yes. I. It was during that period, 1969, that I decided to do my graduate work in computer networking and that started my my career okay and then uh take me through like post-school and in your career path it led to a very important day in your life right may 22nd 73 talk about like that day then what led up to that day and how that came about well let me tell it this way at, at mit as a senior project uh, i got to build a computer memory uh, we built a computer of four of us and my computer memory remembered things by launching the bits down a uh, cable and torquing the cable. It was an acoustic delay line cable, so you would torque it. And then the torque would propagate in circles around this coil of cable. And then it would come out, that there would be just a little bit left at the other end, which you would then recover with uh, electric signals and then send the bits right back down again, circulating. So what I learned in that project was how to send bits one at a time down a long cable. So when it came time for MIT to connect to the internet, they needed somebody who knew how to send bits one at a time down a long cable. And I was the guy. Mm -hmm. So I lucked out and got that job. And then when I went to, in, in 72, I moved from MIT to the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center which also wanted to be connected to the internet, and they needed a guy who knew how to send bits one at a time down a long wire. And I was the guy. I had done it twice already. So I put Xerox on the internet. And and it turned out that that particular knack, putting bits at high speed on a long cable, uh, led me from Xerox into my own company, 
which eventually was worth billions of dollars. And, uh, uh, and it became, much of what I did became the plumbing of the internet, a thing called Ethernet, invented, as you remembered, on May 22nd, 1973. Okay. Um, I mean, and like you mentioned, I mean, the internet was around before then, right? But this just kind of sped the process along and kind of connected, I mean, well, working with Xerox, you know, kind of put them then into what would become, you know, what we would know as the internet today. Yeah, Ethernet um, uh, supported a major transition uh, of the internet. So let me list the three things that Ethernet did for the internet. First, it delivered packets to the desktop. Prior to Ethernet, there were only mini computers. And so the internet packets would go to these mini computers, which would then talk to dumb terminals on your desk with characters. Ethernet uh, didn't deal with dumb terminals. It dealt with the first personal computers that we were developing at Xerox Research. And, uh, And it carried the internet packets all the way to the desktop. So that was contribution number one. Contribution number two is that Ethernet was about 1,000 to 10,000 times faster than what we used to have to our desk. I had a, prior to Ethernet, had a 300 bit per second dumb terminal, cutting edge dumb terminal on my desk. And the next day I had an Ethernet cable running at 2.94 megabits per second, about 10,000 times faster. So there was a big Post-Ethernet, not only was it serving personal computers, but it was serving them with abundant bandwidth. And then the third contribution is that Ethernet joined what was then a a parade of standards. The Internet was built on standards. TCP, TCP IP are the protocol standards. Ethernet became the plumbing standards. So, uh, So those are the three transitions that Ethernet contributed to. Uh, packets to the desktop, abundant bandwidth, and uh, multi-vendor standards. And at the time, was the thinking that this would just stay like an industrial application, or is this something that even you at the time were thinking, hey, this could be um, you know, mass-produced and, and used for consumers uh, worldwide? Yeah, well, you've just introduced the first moment of temptation. It's at points like this where storytellers like to exaggerate uh-huh. their role in history. <laughs> so, no, I had no idea Ethernet would have the impact that it did. Uh, at first, it was simply uh, a high-speed path to the first laser printer that we built at Xerox. And then it went from the laser printer, it went to email and access to the Internet. And before I knew it, um, it uh, the Ethernet, Ethernet and various forms of Ethernet in, including wireless Ethernet, which today we call Wi-Fi, uh, spread like wildfire and became the plumbing, uh, various forms of, of uh, local networking became the plumbing of the Internet. And then I started a company in 1979 to provide products in this area. And so we shipped the first commercial Ethernets for personal computers and very quickly became a multi-billion dollar company doing that. And is that something that, that you wanted to do then, take this on yourself rather than license, say, the technology to another company? or And how did it work with, with Xerox? Like, did you own then the, the, the technology behind it? Was it proprietary to, to you or the company? Or like, how did that work? Well, there's a, uh, in patents, there's a difference between the inventors and the owners. Okay. So uh, there, I and my colleagues 
various in various groups became inventors of several patents related to Ethernet. But Xerox owned the patents. And one of the first things that I did when I left Xerox was uh, convince Xerox it was in Xerox's interest to put those Ethernet patents into the public domain, which they did. Uh, and the reason they did that was to stimulate the creation of a standard. Mm -hmm. If you uh, if you didn't have patents standing in the way, then uh, the thinking was you'd get to a standard more quickly, and that happened. Ethernet became a standard, and no one had to pay uh, royalties to Xerox as a result of that. And it worked out uh, well for you. I mean, I guess anyone could have then created then the company that, that you created to kind of commercialize it, but because you led in the technology, you know, you kind of had the, the upper hand in, in being able to, to know that this was going to be something that you wanted to then produce for, for consumers. And well, my secret, my secret weapon, uh, which, which I uh, love to divulge, is uh, a time machine. I had a time machine called the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. And there, while living there, we were um, encouraged to travel into the future 10 years. And so we built an internet inside of Xerox with personal computers and ethernets and laser printers and routers and everything. So in 1979, when I left Xerox to start my own company, I knew exactly what to do because I had done it already inside of Xerox. Now was to join the effort with a lot of competition I'm very pro competition, and we had a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And that, and but our advantage in that competition was that we had had the benefit of that time machine, and we knew exactly what to do. Were there a lot of doubters still at the time, though? Maybe outside of the the technology world that were like, you know, this is this is crazy. There's no way it'll be commercialized, and and you know, eventually going to be what what it became. Um, but you know, at the time, did people think, you know, this will never work? Well, those doubters persist to this very day. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there, there is still there is still the Walking Dead who, who think that Ethernet really did. There was a big battle among the local networks of which, and and the IBM was one of the contestants, and General Motors was another contestant, and my little startup called Three Com was the third contestant again against them. Now we quickly had allies like HP and Xerox and Intel and so on, mm -hmm. uh, but it was a ten year maybe even a 20-year war among contending standards. And the uh, and it was really fiercely competitive, and I think it worked out very well. Uh, Ethernet won. And do you remember, I, I guess going back, uh, I think I mentioned to you when, when we were emailing back and forth that I had interviewed Marty Cooper, who was um, known as making the first call on the portable handheld cell phone, which he helped um, invent. But do you remember the first time then that... Uh, that you were able to transmit something with Ethernet, kind of like the the first time the technology had ever been used, and was that like exciting for you to have this sort of like breakthrough um, and know that you were onto something? Well, um, uh, complicated question. Like the very first um, compelling use of Ethernet was that it allowed your uh, personal computer. Uh, Xerox built these PCs then; they were the, in my book, the first ones, and Mm -hmm. uh, and we built this laser printer, page per second, 500 dot per inch, gorgeous laser printer. And the only way that you could print on this printer was to use an Ethernet connection from your PC. So the, the first thing, the first protocols 
uh, and I wrote them, uh, allowed you to print on this printer. And it was the Ethernet file transfer protocol or the experimental file transfer protocol. And I remember every time I launched a packet over the Ethernet and it was successfully acknowledged at the far side, I would uh, cause a little dot to appear on the screen indicating successful transmission of a packet. <laughs> so as you transferred your document to the printer, the printer, these little line of dots would appear. And of course, the reason you send those dots is that you were in doubt that they would appear. I mean, there's no <laughs> no reason to have the dots except you were in doubt. Yeah. So I was in doubt. So the little dots came out. Eventually, I removed the little dots from the file transfer program because people found it annoying. Uh, and uh, But the... The beauty of this printer was a major motivator for people to get Ethernet on their PCs. It was still an option. Hmm. Yeah, I, I remember when my uh, co-inventor, Dave Boggs, may he rest in peace, he, uh, he was fond of, uh, of, uh, of saying that Ethernet worked uh, in practice, if not in principle, and that it was a... Uh, anyway, <laughs> the answer to your question yeah. is, laser printing and we started printing these gorgeous documents with fabulous fonts and stuff on them it got so that people were the novelty of fonts was such a big thing that people were typically in a memo they would have five or ten fonts because they could uh of course the memos look garish yeah but uh, all these fonts. eventually everyone calmed down and settled on helvetica or new times roman usually one of those two um, and like you mentioned, you you started your company 3Com, uh, but you started out of your out of your apartment in Palo Alto, right? Um, so, I mean, we know what it what it's like now, you know, with all the technology um, that is based there. But what was it like then, living there at the time? Well, it was just beginning to be Silicon Valley, uh, or people started were starting to call it Silicon Valley. I lucked yeah. out. I moved to Boston. Uh, to Palo Alto in 1972, which is the right year to do it. Uh, Intel had just been founded, and and uh, uh, the early days of Silicon Valley were starting. And they're different. They were different from today's Silicon Valley in that the scale of everything was smaller. There was no, com there were no personal computers. The at at MIT, people had electronics in their dorm rooms, but they were stereo systems. They were not personal computers. Yeah. And so the markets for all of our products were, uh, by comparison to today, were tiny. So our customers were principally nerds and the scale of things was quite a bit smaller than it is today. So my company went public and we were profitable in 1984. We went public. I think we had about $12 million a year in revenue something like that, uh, 12. And we raised $11 million in our IPO. Compare oh that to today's seed rounds are $11 million. Yeah. So the whole scale, the whole scale of Silicon Valley, was, it was quite a bit smaller. And the kind of people who succeeded were quite a bit nerdier because uh, most of the products were sold to nerds, not to uh, uh, random people with... Uh, TikTok or whatever. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Amazing how times have changed since then to to now. Now it's just it's commonplace, you know, for for all these new technologies to come about. Where I feel like back then it was it was a it was within a certain world, uh, if you will. Yeah, and I was, for example, I uh, 
my biggest achievement at 3Com was for two years, the two years immediately prior to our going public, I was the vice president of sales and marketing. And I succeeded. But I succeeded because it you could be an engineer and run marketing and sales back then. Mm-hmm. You would never want to try that trick today. <laughs> right. Um, I guess unless you were starting out of a garage, right, or something like that, where you'd have to do it all. But then again, you're, you are every every title, I guess, within the company if you're doing that. Right. You are. Um, and I guess yeah. that would be real early stage. Um well, for six months, I was the only employee of 3Com, so the uh, all the titles were mine. That was it, huh? Uh, and then talk about your relationship with Steve Jobs, because I read somewhere that he had offered you a job at Apple. Was this uh, like around 1979? And um, yeah, what was the, that story? Uh, I had a, I had two apartments in 1979, one in Palo Alto, opposite Stanford, and one in um, uh, Boston, opposite MIT. Mm-hmm. And I was shuttling back and forth and consulting. And one a lonely night in June of 1979, I got a call from a guy named Steve, from a company named Apple, from a city named Cupertino. And I was unfamiliar with all three. But he convinced me that we should, a very convincing fellow, that we should have lunch when, the next time I was on the West Coast, which was later that week. So we met Steve and I at uh, at a sort of a organic food restaurant on um, mm-hmm. Stevens Creek Boulevard, a stone's throw from Apple's headquarters then in Cupertino. And he, he, uh, he was recruiting a networking guy, and, I was, uh, and I'm a networking guy. Um, but I came a week after having started 3Com, and so what I came was with a proposal to sell him a network for his Apple's. And, and um, being a, a marketing whiz, I decided to call this network Orchard. Okay, hoping yeah. That, hoping that Steve would find that attractive. I don't think he even heard the word or, uh, Orchard before he moved on <laughs> to the next step. He was intent on recruiting. But, I, but he could see that I had just started my own company. And so instead of getting angry with me for turning him down, he became my uh, – he helped me for the next – he and I were buddies to the 1980s, and he helped me quite a lot. So here's my mentor, 10 years younger and a, a college dropout, mm-hmm. and he's mentoring me 10 years older with a PhD, and I got a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah. Funny how that works, but in the end, I mean, obviously, you were both extremely successful, so uh, I guess it worked out, right? It worked out, yeah. Um, and then eventually you would go on to, to leave your company, 3Com, um, but you would write columns, give talks, and become a venture capitalist. So do you enjoy that as much as uh, being able to inspire others and to dream about you know, what's possible as well as you know, what you were able to, to accomplish within your career up to that point? Yeah, I think I've discovered that the secret to happiness is staying on the steep part of the learning curve. If you're on the early part of the learning curve, you don't know anything and it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you know everything and it's boring. But getting on the steep part of the learning curve is is uh, the secret to happiness. And so I've, I'm now starting my sixth career. I have been on five previous learning curves, uh, one of which was 3Com. But I ran a magazine, InfoWorld, 
I was a venture capitalist for ten, these are ten years at a time, by the way, ten year careers. Yeah. And so I'm now um, starting my sixth ten year career. So staying on the steep part of the learning curve is is uh, the fun part. And um, like every entrepreneur I've ever interviewed, they always say, you know, if I ever bring up the the term like retirement for them, they're like, no, it's always a, a learning process and um, and always wanting to to do some sort of contribution, um, you know, to, to whatever it is they've not only accomplished, but continue to at least inspire others to to kind of take the, the ropes and continue, you know, with whatever it is that they've that they've been able to um, accomplish up to that point. So. Do you think that, that that'll that that'll also you know like you just said you you're starting your sixth career, that'll always be a, a part of who you are the the rest of your life. Yes, ditto. Ditto, ditto to you too. Okay. And uh, looking back over your career, I mean, do you have any any regrets or anything that you would have done different, knowing what you know now? Well, I answer that question only reluctant only reluctantly because things have worked out so well for me. I'm uh, reluctant to change the past in any way. But I do think if I had learned sales, sales and selling and the importance of communicating, if I'd learned of its importance and how to do it a few years earlier, it would have made my life easier. I became the head of sales and marketing of my company when we were desperate. Uh, and we went and I took her from zero to a million dollars a month. And I had to learn how to do sales and marketing during that two year period. And uh, so, so for example, I failed to sell IBM on Ethernet. IBM gave me a choice. In fact, they paid me $2,000 a, cha- uh, a shot and gave me two shots to convince IBM to adopt Ethernet. And I, I went and gave two talks. And, and in retrospect, I realized that I, these talks were, had I known anything about sales, the talks would have been completely different. I didn't know who the decision makers were. I didn't know what their considerations were. And I just went in there and won the argument. But in selling, you learn that winning the argument is not the same as winning the order. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, in both those uh, stints at IBM, I got the, I won the argument hands down, but I did not get the order. Hmm. It's uh, How much of it is, is luck and hard work? Because I always feel like, you know, my successes in life, sometimes it hasn't always worked out, but it ended up working out in the end because I thought that, okay, if I didn't get that job or get that promotion, then it wouldn't have led me to the path where I'm at today. So do you think it, it is like a balance of, you know, yes, it's hard work, but also some luck involved in that and in your path? There are people all over the map on this particular issue, and I, 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 am, I believe you make your own luck. Uh, you, you prepare... You make resilient preparations so that in the future, which is uncertain, uh, no matter how things work out, you're able to make the most of it. So I think you make your own luck. So there is luck, and it does it does uh, play a role, um, but I don't think it's mostly luck. Uh, Steve Jobs created the world's most valuable company, not because he was lucky, I assure you. Right, right. Looking back, like, did you ever think that technology would be where it is today um, and that you contributed to it? And, you know, sometimes pinch yourself and think, wow, I can't believe that this is the life I've lived um, and that I've been able to contribute to, to what we have today with technology being so readily available. Well, this is one of those moments which I referred to earlier. The temptation is, of course, to believe that 
I intended all this to happen and anticipated it in advance. And of course, if I said that, it would be a gross exaggeration. Uh, no, things unfolded. Uh, the, the growth of the internet. The internet is now 52 years old, I believe. Uh -huh. uh, 1969, October 29th, the first internet packets were transmitted. So, and in that time, three quarters of the human race, um, what is that, four and a half billion people are now on the internet. Suddenly, I mean, in just 50 years, we've got uh, three quarters of the human race connected. And I claim being connected makes all the difference in the world. So a lot of the events that are passing are either benefits or pathologies of connectivity. We're now connected. There's no getting around it. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I know you've made bold predictions before uh, the future of technology, even literally eating your words once. But not to put, the, put you on the spot or hold you in any of this, but um, how do you envision the, the future of technology and innovation and what that looks like in, in the future? I think um, you've heard it before, so I hesitate to repeat it, but the uh, technological advance is accelerating, mm -hmm. and uh, we should be happy about that. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't what I called a minute ago pathologies. There are pathologies, and they have to be dealt with, but the overall impact of technology is positive, uh, dramatically so. It's almost embarrassing that it needs defense, and the uh, it's very exciting to be continue to be a part of technological advance because of the, uh, the impact that it has on the uh, human life. Uh, so uh, um, I encourage people to play a role if they can in innovation. Innovation is makes the world go round, and it uh, it accounts for progress and you know the extension of life and the, the raising of uh, the rising the rising of income uh, income levels. It's, it's just steady and and but like I said, you have to deal with the pathologies, but you. Pathology should not lead you to give up on technology. That would be a mistake. Okay. And this is kind of a follow-up question. Um, what advice would you give to somebody that would want to follow in your footsteps? Well, you got to know something. It's not enough to want to help, to, to, uh, to want to um, save the world. you got to know something. And... And when I say something, something that's of value and something that you know better than almost anybody else, you want to focus on mastery in a field of some kind so that you can be of value to the world. And it has to be fun. You can't be really good at something if you don't find it to be fun because you, you just won't stick with it. So do what's fun and uh, get really good at it. That's, that's my advice. I, I'd add to that, learn how to communicate with people, mm -hmm. learn how to sell uh, and uh, I'm about to share with you the key word, the secret word. Okay. Here it is. The secret to selling, the secret to communication, the secret is listening. Okay. You got to learn. You got to learn to pay attention and listen, listening to what uh, people tell you. Yeah, and I think that's important uh, for every aspect of life, right? Even in not only just in career and business and sales, but every aspect of life, because I think that's how you learn. Or as they like to say, God gave us two ears and one mouth. Take the hint. <laughs> that's true. Bob, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. And uh, best of luck to you with, with your sixth career now. 
That was Robert Metcalf, engineer, internet pioneer, and entrepreneur. You can download and follow the My Fame Explained podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and leave us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search My Fame Explained. Have an idea for a future show? You can email us at myfamedexplained at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Larry Gilbert, and this is the My Famed Explained podcast at myfamedexplained.com. Explained.com.